Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Lou. Hey guys. And Mev. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about um, commuting and all of the problems that um, are associated with it and all of the frustrations it causes. But I think before we have that discussion, we have to talk about um, the interruption to commuting that has happened over the last year for many people. Obviously, this has not been a universal experience, but... um, for a lot of people in the U.S., um, this pandemic has given them a taste of remote work. You know, they're calling into the office via Zoom or, you know, whatever video call software of your choice. And, you know, that means they're working from home. And there have been any number of discussions about the meaning of that. Lou, I know you worked from home for a bit uh, at the start of the pandemic. How, how did that suit you? Oh, it was great. I mean... Yeah, just just being able to like reduce the amount of commuting. Not that my commute is ridiculously short too, so I don't know what I'm complaining about. I basically live next door to where I work. But even then, like the whole getting up, getting dressed and having to follow somebody else's patterns was obnoxious. So yeah, it was great. And being able to just kind of take care of things as I needed to and kind of fit work around my It felt more like I was fitting work around my life instead of fitting my life around work, um, which was great. I loved it. It was fantastic. Um, best 90 days or so of my life. But uh, yeah, that was a long time ago at this point, probably 10 decades at this point. Now, obviously, you've since gone back to working in person, working... Uh the old normal, so to speak. Um, and, you know, for a lot of quote unquote essential workers, the, there never was a period where they were able to work remotely, you know, grocery stores and uh, healthcare environments, you know, all necessarily did not get to experience this um, uh, remote work period that nevertheless um, occupied a lot of media attention and a lot of attention on Twitter because of the sorts of people that you find in the media and on Twitter, these are people working jobs that, you know, were working remotely. And so you had discussions about um, how there were um, shortages and, or not shortages, but fewer sales of work pants and, uh, you know, slacks and the like, because Zoom calls naturally are um, from the above only. Ironically, I actually have strong opinions on this because in women's clothing in particular for the like previous two years, khaki pants were basically extinct. So if there's a shortage on work pants or anything, if anything, it's brought it back because I can actually find khakis uh, that are appropriate for work now, which didn't happen before. Slight fashion aside, but khaki pants well, are and Also, a lot of like, women's work pants do not have adequate pockets. And it's really annoying because we have to have very slim figures and we can't have anything bulky coming out of our sides like a phone because that's not ladylike. Anyways, but, welcome to fashion yeah. out. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, slight pant note aside, but yeah, things are different. Now, obviously, there were also real problems to remote work as, you know, the sort of paradigm. Um, I, I know my dad did a lot of work remotely, and something I noticed in him is that he was doing a lot of work outside of normal work hours. The barriers between the work day at, at the office and, um, you know, home life got blurred because he could now do the things he was doing at work from home. And so five o'clock rolls around, you know, normally he gets out at three, he might still be working on something. He might still be frustrated by the things he's working on because that's, um, you know, that's what work is. It's a source of frustration. Now a year has passed. Um, even a year ago at this point, there were people who after that initial shutdown had gone back to their workplaces, you know, as restaurants opened up and more places opened up. Um, so it was never, I don't think, a majority of people who were actually working from home. But now that vaccines are coming, um, something like 40% of the U.S. is now fully vaccinated, you're, you're seeing this renewed push to get back to offices. And not everybody is happy about that, I, I would say. There's like some real anxieties about that. And, um, you know, people who kind of liked the way things were during the pandemic perversely and, you know, for legitimate reasons. Yeah. And we've talked before, I think, uh, about the divide that that kind of creates in, in the workforce, because I have to be on site to do my job, um, except for during that one weird period when we were closed, um, back when people gave, gave a crap about anything. Um, and so there, there is kind of like a resentment between the people who can be remote and the people who have to be there. Um, and now that things are, are picking up and uh, we're being pushed to, to have everything fully opened, because um, I would be very surprised if, if anything, there's any restrictions in the next like three weeks, to be honest. Um, we should have restrictions because 40%, as you said, is nowhere near the 90% that we need for herd immunity um, and vaccinations. But <laughs> who cares? Nothing matters anymore. Uh, yeah, there's and definitely... Also now we can remove masks, which doesn't make any sense because my my doctors tell me like, oh, we don't know for people who are immunocompromised, you act like you don't have the vaccination. And now they're like, take all your masks off. And um <laughs> the disconnect of information. So I'm going back to just staying in my house all the time <laughs> and looking for remote work, which is not easy. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, we're back at work where, you know, people are commuting more. Um, weirdly, if I think if you've driven in the past year, you've noticed that people are way meaner on the roads too. Um, there it's just there was such some a statistics showing that uh, traffic fatalities have gone up because mm -hmm. one effect of fewer people on the roads is people drive faster. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are driving faster. They're driving meaner. Um, like everybody's got tensions and frustrations about the situations that we're in and road rage is just crazy. It's, it's all over the place. So on top of having to go to work in a stressful environment, you have to commute during all of that gross garbage. This is a, a total aside, but last summer, like the record for um, driving across the country from New York City to LA, like plummeted, like repeatedly during the pandemic because roads are open. 
you can go a hundred miles an hour at night. Um, you should not do this, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, no, try to go as slow as possible, please. When you're doing this, um, no speeding, uh, you know, yeah, don't, don't do it. Just walk. How about you walk? Just do that. That's fine. That's good commuting to me. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, um, but when I after I graduated from school, I live in southern Connecticut and a lot of recent graduates in my area end up commuting into New York City to get their start because it's ridiculous. Like the rent in New York City is ridiculous. So instead, what we do is we take and they're there. It's not just younger people. It's it's people who work in the city. Um I know people who have done this for for decades, where they get on the bus in our town to a train station, a half hour on this bus to the train station, then from the train station, an hour and a half into the city. And then that's just to get into Grand Central. Luckily for me, I worked near Grand Central, so I could just walk. But some people then had to get on a subway and you're looking at two, three hours. Yeah, you could drive, but um, I don't know anybody who's ever lived in that area or been in New York City knows that driving is a nightmare. I never want to do it. Um, and I'm so glad I moved up to Rochester. Part of the reason I did even before the pandemic was because I couldn't handle a commute like that. It was like, I like being in a city environment, but the commute was was crazy. And now I think back and I feel like I dodged a bullet because I can't believe having to do that commute during the pandemic, especially now that people are starting to go back. And what's that going to look like being on the trains? And I mean, it's scary enough to have to, you know, go into Grand Central and there's a bunch of uh, National Guard guys walking around. Um, And now there's a pandemic on top of everything else. Um, So like the mental health side of things from commuting, I think is just going to it's it's going to be worse than it was before. Yeah. and, And that's on top of it being absurdly expensive to do. So I don't know what the, I know that during the pandemic, they raised rates on the subway and um, rates in Metro in general, but um, it's very expensive, especially when minimum wage in New York state and New York city is still $15 a day. Um, So you're talking about a good portion or sorry, not $15 a day, $15 an hour this year. Um, You're talking about a good portion of your wage going just to, the cost of that. Um, so yeah, it's it's insane. Uh, yeah, back five years ago, it cost about four hundred dollars a month, um, and one of those internships was was unpaid, and one of those was only ten bucks an hour. So yeah, it's more than half your paycheck is going towards commutation. Mm. Yeah, um, there was a. Just on on the subject of uh, remote work, there was a study by Global Workplace Analytics and a company called Owl Labs that uh, surveyed about 1,400 people um, last summer and discovered that while a lot of people wouldn't have considered remote work as ideal before the pandemic, something like 80% said they would like to continue working remotely, maybe for three or four days a week going forward after the pandemic. you know, for all the stresses of, you know, ending that work-life balance that comes there, it seemed like something that people were actually enjoying. Um, and, you know, something that came up during the pandemic is suddenly there was um, 
the sort of double-edged sword of people could be home with their children, but also now people had to deal with uh, remote schooling with their children, which, you know, a lot of parents struggled with, to be sure. But you saw at the start of this year, there was this big push to reopen schools for in-person teaching because um, the idea being that, well, if these people are at home with their children, taking care of their children, they can't come back to the office. And so there was this huge shift trying to get people back into the office. And step one of that was this push to reopen schools, even when that had opposition from a lot of parents, actually. Yeah, a lot of parents, especially, um, you know, not especially, but parents and epidemiologists who uh, at the same time as the British variant of coronavirus is uh, becoming the most dominant variant in the U.S., um, it, which is so infectious that at one point they were saying anybody like in any vicinity not wearing a mask, that was instant exposure uh, to that variant. Um, at the same time, the CDC lowered their requirement from six feet of social distance to three feet hugely led by the need to reopen schools. Um, so I'm sorry to say the CDC, I don't, I, not to be conspiracy theory, and there are some good things from government bodies doing this kind of work, but they ha don't have a good track record for this, for doing things that actually make sense and are actually for the public health uh, and not just politically motivated. Um, and that's a huge problem. That's a major problem. Anyway, back to remote work. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it is tied together because right. the decisions that led to remote work are the decisions that are helping to uh, smooth the runway for this return back to the office are, you know, not being made in a vacuum. They are being made in an environment where there's intense pressure to produce a return back to the office, a return to quote unquote normal. The CDC is not infallible. It's not immune to those pressures. It's not a, there was this perception, you know, even last fall that uh, the Republican party was almost campaigning on the idea of putting children back in schools um, because, you know, if Democrats had their way, they'd shut down the whole country was the right. talking point at the time. Obviously Democrats did not do that, but one can wonder if maybe they would have if there wasn't this very vocal force opposing it, especially when some of the worst months of the pandemic were January and February before the vaccine was more widespread. Well, and it, it all comes down to, like you said, it's so that the, the kids need to go back to school so the parents can go back to work. Like we're sacrificing our children for the economy. Just like what's his name a couple, uh, back towards the beginning of the pa pandemic said, you know, old people will sacrifice ourselves for the economy. You know, like, mm -hmm. all right, thank you for for like volunteering a bunch of people who are no better. Like, uh. Yeah, we, we talked about this last year um, at the beginning of the pandemic, again, 10 years ago, that the rhetoric that the U.S. has used in the war on terror had really impacted how everybody was perceiving um, shutdowns is that we can't let the virus win. We can't let the, the virus uh, control our lives to the point. And I was like, okay, but the virus doesn't care. It's not sentient. Uh, as far as we know, um, it's not sentient. 
uh, it doesn't care if we do that. In fact, if we just do go about our lives, like congratulations, you have given it uh, an opportunity to spread. We lack the ability to talk about public health and what is good for um, everyone. Yeah, you can't get rid of the coronavirus by, you know, flashing your sidearm. It's not going <laughs> to not going to scare it away. It's not how it works. Well, there was also this popular perception and it was fostered by a, a lot of people who, you know, either should have known better or did know better that uh, kids weren't going to get COVID. They weren't going to spread COVID. And as schools reopened, studies after study showed that that wasn't exactly true. Right. That wasn't um, maybe the science, actually. Yeah, there was definitely a perception that like COVID did an ID check and or, or like there was a height requirement to get COVID or something like that. And you must you be too tall, this tall yeah. to get this virus. Yeah, yeah you got to be this tall. Or, or like, I got to see your ID before I can infect you. Come on, you know, uh, <laughs> like they were going to get fined or something um, for, well, for selling to you or, or whatever, which is so stupid. Like, obviously, children are going to be able to get this. Obviously, they're going to be able to to spread it. Anybody who has children know that those schools are little plague factories where one person gets strep and then there goes the entire school. For, for future references or future uses, like remote teaching could be helpful, like from a hybrid model, especially like, I don't know about uh, you, but we had so many snow days just because people in Connecticut don't seem to handle snow very well. It's like we know it comes every year, but we're surprised every single time. Um, or at least our, you know, the people who clean the roadways seem to be. And of course, the, everybody goes out and panic buys, but we would miss out in school. And I was one of those weird kids who was like, no, I don't want to like, why are we closing the school? I want to go to school. Um, and I don't see how this like this could be something that's helpful, especially now that we're heading into a, a world where the climate's going to get worse. Um, we're going to have more snow days. We're going to have more. Uh, events where we are stuck inside because of uh, hopefully not another pandemic, but epidemiologists are already talking about that. So like, we really need to think about how can we incorporate this model because it works for people. People are enjoying it and people are getting their work done. Um, I know when I, I interned at a place in central New York and we, that winter, we just got dumped. There were so many days that we actually couldn't go to work uh, I lived like a mile away from where I worked and we couldn't go because we're talking feet of snow. Um, and we had a remote work model that worked because they had to, because if they hadn't, you know, they would miss so many days to get stuff done due to snow. Yeah. On the other hand, like I, I'm against getting stuff done and <laughs> taking impromptu days off. Uh, Cause I think New York city, um, declared that in the future they will be not having any snow days. Which right. They'll be using remote bummer. teaching. To... Yeah. That's a huge bummer. Um, and I, um, I, I saw this point made on Twitter and I'm sure uh, Noah would like to point it out if you were here. <laughs> you know, the sorts of lesson plans that work for in-person teaching don't necessarily translate to a remote lesson, you know, and, and vice versa. So you're not going to necessarily have just a, a neat slot into remote teaching that day when there's two feet of snow on the ground. It's, it doesn't work that way. But yeah. um, 
Absolutely. No. I, I can hear him yelling <laughs> now. <laughs> All right. We're going to end this segment here, but um, when, when we uh, return from the break, we're going to talk about, you know, what a return to commuting means for a lot of people and, you know, what that really looks like and the stresses that causes. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Lou. Hey, guys. And Mev. Hello. In our first segment, we talked a bit about the uh, remote work paradigm that arose during the pandemic. And now we're going to transition, like a lot of workers, into talking about commutes. Um, This is um, the impetus for this show, really, is a tweet I came across that was getting dunked on this past week. It's from uh, Boston Globe Ideas, which is, you know, effectively their opinion section. And they were writing about this transition back to the workplace and effectively making an argument that even a hybrid approach of some workers working from home and some workers working remotely wasn't going to last. Um, But this is the tweet that uh, caught a lot of ire. Uh, Reason number three, working from home can be too convenient. Commuting gives us time to process our days. Let our minds wander and explore ideas. Now, this is accompanied by a picture of a bunch of people at what looks like a New York City subway station who really do not look like they're exploring ideas. They do not look happy at all. Mev, as somebody who experienced that sort of commute, did you find the time to explore ideas and process your day? Um, I usually used that time to get a little more sleep or do my makeup because I'm one of those people that I'm not a morning person, but in order to get to work at, um, the first, the first job I had in the city was 10 AM. So like that commute wasn't awful. But when I worked at another job that started at eight 30, um, they wanted me there at eight, but it was, that wasn't happening. I wasn't going to get there any earlier. Uh, I was catching the train at, I want to say six. 30 in the morning was when I was getting on my bus. So waking up at six o'clock in the morning, which like after going through grade school, I never, ever wanted to do again. And as for the other people, the line that we're on specifically did not have very adequate service, cell service on the line and data service. And especially once you're underneath the tunnels. So it's not like you can be on your phone or do anything. Some people were basically... A lot of people who use that time, quote unquote, productively were people who were working on work. And that was about it. Uh, Most people were just kind of like, nobody looked like they wanted to be there. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I did a study abroad in a major city and had to commute to school back in the day. Yeah, you know, I personally wouldn't feel that comfortable just like zoning out as a woman existing in the world. Like that's definitely one of the things where you're like reading a page and looking up to see who's going to assault you. That's not a time for, for meditation or reflection. In my opinion, um, good on the people who do can do that. I'm personally not there. Uh, yeah. I also grew up in Houston 
which the commute there, like you had to drive 20 minutes to get anywhere, like to the grocery store. And a lot of people were commuting an hour and a half on some of the biggest freeways in the country. Um, and here people complain in Rochester, if you have to go 20 minutes, it's like the other side of the moon to them. Uh, so yeah, commuting, it's not fun. Well, and the other thing too is with, I specifically was working in the news industry for one, one of the jobs that I had in the city. And um, you're exposed to a lot of a lot of news events that aren't particularly happy that are happening around the world. And you're looking at a lot of um, a lot of very disturbing imagery because you're the filter for the public. And so I remember just one morning I'm sitting on the train and talk about, you know, contemplation. Um, I'm sitting there thinking about, all right, if our train were to be hijacked or if something were to happen, how would I escape? And going through all these different scenarios in my head. And that is when I realized this is not healthy. I cannot do this job. Like I, I got to the end of the internship. It was a wonderful experience. Like I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for, for what I had and what I learned. But it was so emotionally exhausting every aspect of it because the, the part of it is you're working an eight hour day it's two hours in two hours out so that becomes a 12 hour day and i didn't have a life outside of that um because i couldn't you know um and it's not like i had a lot of super duper friends on my commute you know uh there was, <laughs> sometimes we talk but for the most part at six o'clock in the morning nobody wants to talk yeah <laughs> so it's always that like that 60-year-old guy who just will not take a hint that wants to chat too so yes i've i've had a lot of people come up to me on train platforms that i were conversations i did not welcome so there was that aspect of it too like like lou was saying being a woman having to be and commuting on these public transportation can be a little scary um especially i had some nights where i came home later ironically the night that the pope was in town um i got home <laughs> a lot later than normal uh and that was kind of frightening uh having to be on the train at that time um or not and it wasn't so much the train but the platforms it's the platforms that you, you feel a little and i don't know how much of that is psychological and how much of that is is um warranted but it's there and it's not meditative contemplation time that's for sure the one thing is like public transit is almost the ideal even for all those flaws of what a commute can look like because you know obviously huge issues with it but in theory you know if you have an extra an hour where you can like read a book or something even if you're yeah. like peering out of the corner of your eye that is significantly preferable to an hour where you're behind the wheel of a car and you're like emitting carbon into the environment and you should not be reading a book while you drive. And, <laughs> and you might be like sitting in gridlock traffic and, you know, a, a trip that should take five minutes takes half an hour or, yeah. you know, something like that. Um, Lou, you had mentioned how Houston has these massive freeways that nevertheless have huge traffic problems. And there's this concept called induced demand where the more you build roads and freeways and highways like that, the more people want to drive. So you don't ever actually catch up to the traffic problem because you just create more traffic. Yeah, you're just creating more traffic. You're creating more pollution. 
you're creating more wastewater situations. Like it, they're awful for the environment. So yeah, your point about public transit for all its issues being an environmental and psychological disaster. Yeah. Right on point. Also our public transportation system too. If you, if you're not driving a car is, isn't like, I understand why people drive a car instead because it is so inefficient. Like I, where, where I grew up is as the crows flies an hour from New York city. But if you want to get there by train, it's two hours. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of people can't do that. And even when you're in the city, like to get from Queens to Brooklyn is like an hour, depending on which train you get on. And it's, it's so inefficient, so inefficient. Right. But to, to a certain extent, those inefficiencies are a reflection of how we have um, allocated our resources as a society for the past several decades. Now we have made a choice in almost every city to prioritize drivers and uh, the experience of them over, uh, you know, mass transit over pedestrians, over bikes, even, um, our, our cities are notoriously unsafe for pedestrians and bicyclists because of how the roads are built to effectively not give them anywhere to go. And that's changing somewhat as more bike lanes are popping up more protected bike lanes, but it's still, you know, not ideal. It's still not on par with what you see in other parts of the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and and Rochester, we're recording on Sunday. Uh, By the time this airs, um, Reimagine RTS will have been debuted for two days. Um, Now, what is that? Reimagine RTS is their fixing of the transit system in Rochester. Oh, so it's Uh, all better now, right? Oh, yeah, it's all better. And by all better, it's reducing costs and cutting services, just like every single time somebody says reimagine they, that's what they mean is uh, I counted this morning and to my, as far as I can tell um, today, Sunday, there are 40 some odd uh, lines and starting tomorrow, there are 30 and with reduced stops and, and everything else. Like I know my workplace used to be on a stop and it's no longer on a stop. Um, that is also true of my workplace. Yeah. It, it's great. Um, so there's fewer, fewer stops, fewer lines. Um, they've added, they did add a, uh, feature that will allow people who don't live uh, near a line, which is basically anywhere, not directly in the city, which again, they cut lines to, you can call and do like curb to curb service is what they're calling it, where they, you know, you reserve and say, Hey, I need to be picked up from this spot and be taken to this spot. Um, problem is it's three times more expensive um, and you have to reserve it like 12 hours in advance, uh, which is not great and not ideal. Um, so not once again, services are cocked. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's like it's reimagined. A worse, it's a worse version of Uber. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a worse version of Uber. Um, it's more expensive. They've like doubled down on the spoke or once again, double down on the spoken wheel system that makes, you know, if you think getting from Queens to Brooklyn for an hour is bad, like we're talking getting from uh, one part of Greece to another part of Greece taking an hour, kind of inefficient. And um, I that. live in Greece and I do not have a car I, for several years now. I, I have walked to work almost every day. It's 
about a half hour walk. That's mile and a half. And, you know, in the winter, that's not pleasant often, but there hasn't really been an alternative, even though there is that bus stop that was right in front of my workplace, you know, from, for where I'm coming from, it wouldn't have helped me much anyways. Um, and now, but I did have coworkers who took the bus to work and they won't, I don't know what they're planning to do now if this, now that that's going away. And so, you know, we've built our cities around the idea that people are going to be driving to work, which really uh, excludes people who can't or won't drive for whatever reason. It's in our infrastructure. It's like built into the concrete now, uh, the automobile. And that's had real negative impacts to say nothing of the environmental ones. Yeah. The the more we isolate these areas of basically people who can afford a car and afford all the costs that come with owning a car, um, the more we isolate and double and, and keep putting infrastructure into this and cutting services that would reduce the need for cars, the more economic disparities are going to exist in our communities. Um, we've basically made it to the point where you can't live in a suburb in Rochester without a car, mm-hmm. like even a little bit. And that's every city, you know, yeah. the suburbs, that is what they are. And that's on purpose. It's designed to keep certain people out. Um, and that's an economic policy decision. People want to say it's objective, but no, there are, there are reasons behind it and there are choices behind these There are examples of this in probably every major metro area, but the one that comes to mind is Atlanta. Famously, there has been opposition to um, expanding the subway to those suburban counties, um, like the one in which the Atlanta Braves play, because of a fear somehow that uh, bringing the subway from the city to the suburbs is going to transport the crime from the city to the suburbs. There's obviously a huge like racialized element to this fear. It's, you know, it plays on ugly politics. I've heard Irondequoit residents who have 100% blamed the bus stop in Irondequoit Plaza for urbanizing their area. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Channel. Like Irondequoit is, I, I do live in Irondequoit. It's a lovely town, but there is, problems like there exists if you go down hudson for example there is an apartment complex uh on the same side as a wegmans if you just walk like five blocks down but there's no sidewalk on that side so if you want to get to the wegmans it's five blocks down you have to literally cross the road twice a major street twice in order to get to that so these are these are choices people have made in order to keep other people away and that's really gross. And we need to reconcile that. Especially if you look at like Rochester's history, we we used to have a subway system that went out to the suburbs and was pretty efficient. And they like they knew how to handle snow. And we got rid of it. It was like one of the the, the shortest lasting subway systems. It was built in the 1920s and uh, was closed down in the 19. 19- 60s i believe 50s or 60s and it's a little dated now from eight years ago um but mike governal i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly um who runs the rochester subway blog did a ted talk um or tedx talk about the rochester subway system and how 
are how Rochester has been developed around car culture. So I definitely recommend people who are interested in this topic uh, and local history to check that out. And ultimately, what, what all this means is people spending more of their day like going to and from work rather than like enjoying life. And there was a study from England that found that adding 20 minutes to your commute makes you as miserable as getting a 19% pay cut. You know, there are real psychological tolls being leveled on people. And so what happens is to avoid that long commute, People want to be where all the jobs are, and they, and that results in a lot of uh, driving up rents and housing prices in city centers until those become intolerable and people have to move out to the sub- suburbs just to afford a place to live anymore. Um, it, it's this really vicious cycle because now those people have to deal with the, the two-hour commutes you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. As annoying as it was to do that, there was no way that I would have been able to afford to move into New York City. Um, maybe through like, I know they always talk about like uh, in college, oh, like the alumni network and, but that's all politics and it's really difficult to navigate sometimes. You know, it's one of those things where it's just so expensive and the cost of food, just everything is so much more expensive within the city. And they also, within the city, they have a parking tax on top of everything. So whenever I had to go into the city uh, to one of the medical centers down there um, on a yearly basis, and it's like $40 to park for for being there for like two hours. It's really expensive to just try and get in and out of these places, but it's even more expensive to live in these places. Traffic is one of those things that it's basically a poor people's problem as well. Um, the, the less money you have, the more likely you are to have to deal with uh, issues of commuting, either because you can't afford to live in the place where your work is, or because you can't afford some of the luxuries of, of being able to do that. Like once you get past being able to afford a car and have to deal with that, then we're talking about people who can afford to helicopter to work. So they just skip all over all of those problems. Um, and so there's, there's no incentive to fix these problems, um, because they, at a certain point, the people who with the money to fix it don't have to deal with it. Um, I've long felt that being rich doesn't, it, it, it buys you the ability to not have to deal with other people or deal with the problems of other people. You don't have to wait in line anymore, literally when it comes to traffic. Because fundamentally, that's all traffic is. It's just a very long line to get somewhere. All right. There are all these add-on effects to, you know, the uh, issue of commuting. Um, I talked about how it affects rent costs. And one thing that happened during the pandemic is a lot of people who worked at, you know, companies in the city suddenly saw, well, hey, if I don't have to commute to work, you know, why am I paying XYZ in rent, you know, $3,000 in rent in a city like San Francisco, for example, you know, that's just the average rent. And so there was, you know, this sort of uh, mini trend of an exodus from the cities that got some media attention, but it also got attention from naturally bosses. Um, There's a headline from Inc. from May of last year, why you should follow Facebook's lead and pay remote workers less. And effectively, what um, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg had done is they were going to make 
people who are approved for remote work, notify them of their location and adjust their pay according to their cost of living. The idea being that, you know, people are being paid on the basis of how expensive where they live is, which goes against what, you know, economics 101 would tell you, but nevertheless is the logic of business owners when it benefits them. Yeah, pretty smooth. It also doesn't take into account, like when you work from home, your employer, I'm, I'm assuming in most cases, is not paying your, your Wi-Fi bill. Like that's not happening. Mm-hmm. It's like social reproduction, right? Like we're not going to pay women to have babies. We're not going to pay you to, to be able to access the workplace. I've always thought that it made no sense that you're not paid to commute because that's time that I would not be putting in if I didn't have to. I'm going to quote from this article, which is, you know, framed in the most annoying way possible. Quote, this is not a shocking business move. Many businesses pay people differently based on their local cost of living. Most of us can agree that jobs in New York City generally pay more than jobs in rural Idaho. I think this move by Facebook is a great thing. Sure, I don't want anybody to get a pay cut. (laughs) Are you sure? But if you move out of an expensive area, your real cost of living drops. And more important, Zuckerberg says, with this plan, the company will begin recruiting aggressively for remote workers. Now that they found people they can pay less, they will try to hire more of them. Which means they're going to fire the ones that they need or, or find excuses to fire the ones that they are paying more. Like it, that's what the retail world has been doing forever. Like they get rid of their workers before they're able to qualify for the benefits. Yeah. Like, especially in an era where politicians are talking about labor shortages and nobody wants to work and all of this garbage, it's really annoying frustrating to have even white collar workers basically a a race to the bottom so see how little people can be paid uh without going on strike um which hint hint it's at every single level at some point they just need to start sharing the money they've made one last line from this article zuckerberg added that if people lie about where they live there will be severe ramifications what in the bloody heck do you care, you crazy man? It's a free country, y'all. Free country. What do you your, care? Your, your employer gets to now dictate where you live, but it's a free country. I mean, I actually, they have been doing that for forever, moving people around, but like, it's a new, it's just, oh, I can't. What do you, like, what do you care? Honestly, what do you care where I live? I'm, it's none of your business if I have to drive farther or not. You're working remotely. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, who? it doesn't not matter. And uh, what are you going to do? Like, charge me with fraud for saying, oh, no. Like, that's a very school system, stupid districting thing to do. Oh, you can live in this area. Uh, Dude, you have more money than you could ever possibly spend in millions of lifetimes. Who cares? Just stop talking. I'm mad. I, I didn't know Noah was on this call. <laughs> I had to channel him, but just, uh, all right. You got any other lines? Cause I could keep yelling. 
Um, <laughs> no, no, I think I'll stop those, those there. Those, all right. Fair. Like, seriously, it doesn't matter where we live. The, the degree to which businesses are going to be petty jerks about the smallest things in order to squeeze an extra couple cents out of us in order to buy their eighth mega yacht, which, by the way, you're still just one person. You can only be in one spot at a time. Who cares if you need ten houses? You can only live in one at a time. Like this mentality of continuing to force us into doing things and, and making ourselves miserable in order to further increase your wealth. I'm tired of it. And I just think that if people want to work at home, let them work at home and stop making us do this every single day. I saw a pretty good uh, meme going around the internet that said, we, the guy who has a bunch of like, who won't get rid of any single newspaper and has like piles and piles around his house. And, you know, and then the, the, the woman with too many cats, like we call those people crazy and hoarders. Right. And then what do we do with people who just accumulate money for, and like, like, cause you're talking about spending it on 10. Some of these people don't even spend it cause they have so much money. They can't even spend it. So it's just yeah. sitting in an account in the Cayman Islands somewhere. Like it's not going anywhere. They're not no. doing anything with it. And we don't think that's insane. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, uh, what's his face, Bill Gates gets divorced and loses half of his income uh, because he was on the Lolita Express and his wife probably got mad about it. Uh, it doesn't matter because he's still not going to be able to spend it. And neither is she. You can't spend $50 billion. You can't. It's impossible. I'm just going to play the role of whale lawyer here and note that uh, Bill Gates, while a friend of Jeffrey Epstein's, was not on the Loito Express flight logs. We regret the error. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. We should talk about commuting. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, commuting is a miserable experience. And the fact that we have to do it at all and we don't get paid for it is nonsense and stupid and just another way to immiserate all the workers who ultimately are responsible for all the wealth. And I don't care if Jeff What's-His-Face or what Mark What's-His-Face uh, says there are going to be consequences for it. He works remotely too because otherwise why would he have so many damn vacation homes? There's also a lot of consequences for not sharing your wealth with the people, you know? <laughs> Ryan's going to get like, more consequences. Get real here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we're going to take a break here. <laughs> we will uh, come back after this break and talk some about, uh, you know, what we do about the problem of commuting and maybe lay off some of the other problems in society just, just for uh, a moment. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Lou. Hey, guys. And Mev. 
Hello. We talked a bit in last segment before it went off the rails about how (laughs) our society is built around cars and not public transit. Also off the rails. But um. Now we're coming up on the third segment of the show and long time listeners will know what that means, which is we're going to try to find sort of, you know, what we do about this problem. Everybody's miserable driving to work. Everybody is polluting the atmosphere driving to work. You know, we have car crashes. There are all sorts of negative externalities of this decision to build our society around people driving to work. So what does fixing that look like? You know, how can we do that? You probably don't want my real answer, which has to do with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But no, like we really need to reinvest in, in public transit and making our cities walkable and bikeable. And um, in the cases of not, you know, living too far away, uh, having robust, not efficient transportation systems, because that usually means cutting costs to routes that people use, um, but effective transportation systems. Like one of the reasons why uh, I don't bus to work is because there's nothing that runs by us. One of the reason my husband doesn't run to or bus to work is because it would take an hour and a half. And also the bus only comes by every hour. Um, that's not a workable system. So you have to, if you want people to use these these services, you actually have to make them work for people, not people work for the system. There's um, an adage that says, you know, systems for poor people become poor systems because yeah. we don't, in this country at least, spend money on helping poor people. And so to the extent that public transit and the bus has become associated with, you know, poor people, it never, it inevitably breeds a certain sort of resentment. And, you know, there are racial elements to this, of course, because it's the United States Mm -hmm. towards, you know, mass transit towards the idea of spending any tax money on, you know, helping people get to work without a car. And if we're going to build a society where, you know, people don't need a car to get everywhere they want to go, we're going to have to combat those attitudes and we're going to have to push back against a lot of um, ingrained distrust towards public transit. Yeah. I think in the U.S. there's an attitude in people with cars is that it provides them independence and that they don't have to rely on something else in order to get from one place to the other. Like I can just choose right now to go to the grocery store but as I said in, I think, the last segment, like traffic ultimately is just waiting in line. Like You're not off-roading to get to Wegmans. Um, you have to still follow the same thing. Speak just, for yourself. You have- <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please don't off-road. Like, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't do that. Like, you still have to drive on the roads. You still have to basically follow the line. I can't go any faster than the person in front of me. And also, you really do need to stop at stoplight, people. Um, those aren't suggestions. They're they're actually like there for a reason. Um, like it, this, it's a so it's an illusion. This independence, and I think we need to do a good job, a better job, perhaps, of expressing that it's an illusion and that your life isn't improved by having to pay uh, thousands of dollars a year in maintenance and another cost into a vehicle that 
is bad for the environment. Um, like there are better ways to do these things. I, I suppose the problem and the counter argument that will rise up is that we have spent so long catering ev- everything around urban sprawl and driving in from the suburbs to work in a city that now we've got all this built infrastructure that necessarily is harder to build public transit for, you know, public transit works best in dense cities and necessarily has gaps in more uh, sparsely populated areas. But nevertheless, it's, we're going to have to see a densification happen also of people living closer to where they work as just to be environmentally sustainable in this country. It's inevitably going to have to happen. Yeah. Well, in the short term, like this is like fixing public transit is a a goal that we do need to undertake, um, not just for our mental health and and for our community health, but for the sake of the environment. We cannot keep operating the way that we are if we're to survive the century, frankly. And that's a, a reality that is hard to swallow. And one of the ways we could actually do that is to start doing more remote working so that we can bridge that gap between needing to get to work and not being able to get there because we haven't built the infrastructure yet. Um, that would actually be a great start. And then we do need to invest more in infrastructure and make these things possible. Honestly, our infrastructure is crumbling anyway, so we got to do it. Uh, either way, we just need to do it and not yeah. just say, oh, that's impossible. That's too hard. Like These things are definitely achievable. Yeah. Um, go, looking back at like our infrastructure today, a lot of it is what's left from the work project, the works progress administration um, and the new deal. You know, this is we're we're left with this incredible, uh, this incredible project um, that we haven't updated since they did it, um, at least not extensively, aside from, you know, a little band-aids here and there. But with the crisis that we have right now, and yes, everybody's saying, oh, we, there are jobs out there. Um, people just don't want them. We need something where people can do the jobs that they want to do by improving our, our communities, um, like what they did with the New Deal. We can do that with our infrastructure. We have the technology now, and we have the models from other countries. Like there are third, there are third world countries that have high, high speed rail and we still don't have high speed rail and that could change so much, but that who knows when that's going to happen. Cause as far as I know, the freight, the freight trains still own the lines that Amtrak runs on. So try trying to get anywhere fast uh, when the freight trains are coming through because those freights take precedent over the people moving on the trail. And, and the other like, problem with that is we have such an enamored view of tech genius bros here's looking at you elon uh who come up with the same ideas that could work but just do it in the worst way possible like his hyperloop or whatever which is just a tunnel that you can't escape from um that you can only do one car at a time uh we could do that a lot better with just a subway which also you can escape from in case there's a fire some something we haven't mentioned is the fact that like subway cars can transport 
incredible amounts of people in comparison to roadways. Uh, yeah. Like cars are like six by 12 feet of metal that transport one or two people at a time. Most of the time it's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly inefficient, but uh, because we have such a emphasis on independence and individuality in this country, um, which is a large reason why we're in the spot that we're in. People are resentful of having to be, you know, stuck in with everybody else. Um, even if it is better in terms of everything, mental, physical, emotional health. Um, it, yeah. And, and like these solutions that people will keep proposing of like Elon Musk is going to lead the green revolution and, and make everything better. No, that's not likely to happen. Um, Tesla making a bunch of electronic cars isn't fixing our transportation issues. Um, they're just, I don't even want to say a Band-Aid. It's just like a pat on the shoulder. Be like, Very well, you're doing great. Uh, we need to do better, and cars are not the answer. Cars are not the way forward. And before we can even do better, we have to uh, not do worse, as so <laughs> many cities are like cutting uh, funding for public transit, especially after the pandemic, which saw ridership basically disappear overnight in a lot of cities. We have made the choice to fund these uh, mass transit systems by rider fares, which is a whole other layer of uh, problems that we don't have the time to get into. But So every city is looking to make cuts somewhere after the pandemic, except the police departments, apparently. So... We we have to avoid Definitely the are uh, interested in transportation issues. Yeah, hopefully, we can build a society that is uh, better about these things in the future. But first, we have to avoid making society worse. That that's the end lesson of today's punting. <laughs> Please do not make society worse. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou, and I'm Mev. <laughs> this is punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.